This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. Fellowship is always broken when, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we sin. Whenever we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And so God has given us a grace recovery uh, procedure through confession of sin, which means that we simply admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father. We are instantly forgiven. We instantly recover fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in our spiritual life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. Thank you for this nation, for the freedom that we have in this nation, for those who are willing to serve this nation, for those who are willing to uh, fight and preserve our freedoms, for all those who throughout the last 200 plus years have given their lives to preserve the freedoms of this nation. Father, now as we are engaged in this war in Iraq, And this war against terrorism, we pray that you would uh, give our soldiers, give those who are involved in this war, the courage, the wisdom, the discernment to make good decisions. We pray for their protection, that you would watch over them, especially the men from this congregation who are uh, in the theater of war. We pray that you would uh, watch over them, protect them, that you would comfort their families, that they would realize that you are the one who takes care of your children and that we can rest and relax in you. Father, we pray for our president. We pray for the military leaders in the field, that you would give them wisdom, that they might make good decisions. We pray for the enemy, that they might make bad decisions, and that this war would be over quickly and efficiently. Father, now as we study your word, we realize we are engaged in a different war, a spiritual war, a war where we are uh, struggling against the invisible powers, that we're involved in the angelic conflict. Father, we pray that as we Uh, study your word, realize that we are the soldiers in this spiritual warfare on the front lines, and it is up to us to use the weapons that you have given us, the spiritual assets you have provided for us, using your word under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that we might advance and mature in our spiritual lives, and thus glorify you in the midst of this uh, spiritual warfare. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second John. Second John, near the end of the New Testament. And we continue our study in verse 8. Verse 8 is a warning. There's a command that John gives. Look to yourselves. Watch yourselves. Be careful. Pay attention to your own spiritual life. That we do not lose those things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, in the last two or three classes, we have focused on the fact that there is a reward system for believers. Salvation is not a reward system, though. Salvation is based on grace. Salvation is based on the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross. There he paid the penalty for every single sin in human history so that salvation is a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 states that for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
Salvation is a gift, but rewards are earned, earned on the basis of what we do with what God gives us at salvation. The instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone for salvation, you have eternal security. You are adopted into the royal family of God. First, you are born again. You are adopted into the royal family of God, and you are a new creature in Christ. This can never be changed. You did nothing to earn it or deserve it, so you can do nothing to lose it. However, you are given a remarkable spiritual life and a unique spiritual life at the instant of your salvation, and what you do with it will have an impact for eternity. Part of what happens, is, as we have seen, is at the end of the church age, the present age, there will be an event known as the rapture of the church. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. After that event in heaven, all church age believers will go through an evaluation judgment. This is called the Bema Seat, or the Judgment Seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, we will be evaluated on the basis of our spiritual maturity and the fruit of the Spirit, that is the character transformation that takes place in the believer's life as a result of his walk by the Spirit, his learning the Word of God, learning Bible doctrine, and the application of the Word in each person's life. Those who are diligent, those who are faithful, those who are consistent in taking in the Word and applying the Word will grow to spiritual maturity, and at the evaluation judgment, there will be rewards, crowns, various crowns, and we have studied these in the past. Those who fail, those who spend their life in self-absorption and self-indulgence, those who fail to advance spiritually, will lose rewards, and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 John 2:28. Now John in this in this epistle reminds us of this reality that we need to be living today in light of eternity, not to determine where we will be in eternity, but to determine the rewards, the responsibilities and the role we will play when we rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom and on into heaven. The principle is that the decisions you make today will determine what you are in eternity. The decisions you make today will determine what you are in eternity. And we call this having a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We realize that we have an eternal destiny with Christ, but it is up to our volition, your volition, the decisions we make every day in light of our priorities as to what we will be in eternity. So John warns this congregation to look to themselves that they do not lose the things they work for. Obviously, they have advanced to a certain level of spiritual maturity, and it is possible to give up. It is possible to become distracted. It is possible to be uh, to go off course or to be shipwrecked from grace is another term that is used in the Scripture, or fall from grace, so that not that you lose your salvation, but that what you have, the maturity you have achieved, is reversed. And we call that reversionism, where the believer reverses course, uh, goes backward in his spiritual growth, until eventually his life looks no different from the life of an unbeliever, He comes under divine discipline in time, and he will lose whatever rewards he would have gained otherwise at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in the historical situation that John was faced with, we've studied this, that he had a problem with false doctrine. Specifically, it was called docetism. And people were becoming enamored with this intellectual system based on a Concept or based on a philosophical system developed from Plato that was called Neoplatonism. Eventually, this all kind of coalesces in the middle of the second century under what comes to be known as Gnosticism. But many of the ideas that uh, are present in Gnosticism by around 125 to 150 A.D. can be found in the first century. They just haven't pulled themselves together or been pulled together into a tight uh, system yet. But under Docetism, there was a rejection 
of the incarnation of Christ, that they believed that God could not become a man, otherwise it would destroy his deity, so that Jesus, or the second person of the Trinity, didn't become an actual human being. He just appeared to be a human being. It was sort of like a phantom or a a non-physical manifestation. And, of course, when you destroy the nature of Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, as true humanity united with undiminished deity, you destroy the entire concept of both salvation and sanctification. So for that reason, it is extremely dangerous to change your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. When you deny his true humanity, then he no longer lives his life. He no longer would have lived his life, solved the problems in his life on the basis of God the Holy Spirit. By living his life on the basis of God the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ pioneered the spiritual life for the church age. In the Old Testament, the spiritual life was based on the ritual of the law, and it was based on the faith rest drill. But in the New Testament, every believer is given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And at the instant of salvation, we are said to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And that relates to his sanctifying ministry, his spiritual life ministry. The spiritual life for the believer is not emotional. It's not psychological. The spiritual life for the church-age believer is based on his relationship with God the Holy Spirit. So that when we sin, the Scripture says we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. The only way to recover is through confession of sin because Christ, and it's a recognition that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Whether we take the time to, to fully think about all that is involved in confession, what actually is taking place is we're going back to the fact that we have sinned, but Christ paid the penalty for that sin on the cross. It's paid for in full. We don't have to impress God with feeling sorry for sin or going on some sort of a guilt trip or anything of that nature. The sin's been paid for. We are simply acknowledging or admitting our sin, and at that instant we are we are forgiven. However, there are all kinds of distractions that come along in the spiritual life, and there are all kinds of things that come along to distract us from the truth. Verse 7 says of Second John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. These deceivers have one element of distraction, which is a false doctrine. In this setting, the false doctrine was an intellectual system that appealed to the uh, intellectual curiosity of the Greeks. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. See, the world in the Scripture is not talking about a geographical globe. It is talking about the thinking, the thought systems of rebellious mankind in opposition to God. And the emphasis here is there are many deceivers who once they were saved, they were squared away in terms of their doctrine and theology, but then they became distracted. They became enamored with Greek philosophy, specifically Neoplatonism, and so they changed their view of Jesus. This changed their view of the spiritual life, and now they are trying to influence others in the church. So Paul warns, I mean, John warns them against this distraction from the false teachers. Now we need to understand a few things about the mechanics of distraction. Distraction is always the result of arrogance. Distraction is always the result of arrogance. What is arrogance? Arrogance is putting an emphasis on self. Arrogance is putting an emphasis on self. Now remember, there are four, there are four arrogant skills. Four arrogant skills. First of all, you have, uh, self you see, four, four arrogant skills. First of all, you have self-absorption, where we begin to put our eyes on self. Once we begin to focus on self and whatever we want, then the next step is we be- begin to give in to our desires and whatever it is that we are absorbed with, and this leads to self-indulgence. 
After that, we need to justify, we need to make sure that we're right in our arrogant self-absorption and self-indulgence. So that leads to self-justification. And then self-justification leads to self-deception, where we have generated our own view of reality, our own view of the world that revolves around our own uh, impressions of life and whatever impresses us about life. We're giving into that in an indulgent manner. We're justified, and now in self-deception, we're living in that uh, in our own creation as if it is reality. So all distractions begin with self-absorption, with our eyes on self rather than our eyes on God. And as soon as your eyes start to focus on self and self-absorption, then you become the center of life rather than God as the Creator. This is exactly what we have seen in our study in other passages and other times in Romans chapter 1, where man rejects the Creator and begins to worship the Creator. This is the beginning of all false systems of religion. Idolatry is always the result, whether that idolatry involves a physical idol of wood or metal or stone, or whether it involves a more abstract idol, such as some idealistic concept, some figment of your imagination, uh, greed, materialism, some form of lust. Anytime you place some aspect of the creation uh, as more important than God, that is a form of idolatry. So distractions begin with arrogance, and arrogance is the path then to self-destruction, misery, and unhappiness in life. Now, the second point is in the mechanics of understanding distractions. Under arrogance, and when you're arrogant and self-absorbed, you become more concerned with what impresses you than what impresses God. You become more impressed with what stimulates you than with the Word of God. You become impressed with your own emotional stimulation so that something comes along in life and you get excited. It, it, it makes you very happy and stimulates you emotionally. There's nothing wrong with that. But all of a sudden, achieving that state of emotional stimulation becomes more important than doctrine. You see this happen all kinds of times in churches where people go to church and there maybe it's a church that has high high church ritual and through the music and through the smells and the bells they are very impressed with all of the pageantry and everything that's going on and they think that somehow that makes them more acceptable to God in other churches they go and there's a lot of uh, a lot of excitement singing people are standing up and you get in your charismatic churches and there's a different kind of emphasis on emotion and so people go away and they feel very, very excited, very uh, encouraged. People have hugged them all morning long, and they go home and they're all impressed with how, how good they feel, that somehow they must have been close to God because they feel so good about the morning worship service. They've simply been impressed with their own emotions one way or the other, and they're not impressed with the Word of God. Sometimes you get are more impressed with your own intellectual stimulation than with doctrine. And this happens in other churches where there is an emphasis on teaching. But what happens is that there are some people who just love the uh, intellectual stimulation, and that's as far as it goes. And so they love to learn things, but they're not really applying the doctrine in their life. So they're more impressed with their own intellectual stimulation than doctrine. That was the problem that John was dealing with. These were people who were becoming impressed with the intellectual thought systems of the Greeks, and they liked to uh, get involved in all the intricacies of logic and working out these various systems, and so that impressed them over the Bible. Others become more impressed with pleasure than with doctrine. These are hedonists. They are more impressed with their own personal pleasure and enjoyment of the various details of life than with doctrine. So they always seem to find some reason to be uh, somewhere else other than in Bible class learning the Word. Others become more impressed with psychological stimulation 
than with doctrine. And these are people who, who like to figure out how they work and how they tick on the inside and what gave rise to this problem in their life or that problem in their life. And so they want to go to a church where the pastor deals with a lot of uh, psychological theory. And so they become very impressed with that rather than being impressed with doctrine. So all of these are areas of distraction where they, where people become distracted with what stimulates them rather than with the Word of God. They become impressed with their own emotions or they become impressed with intellectual stimulation or they become impressed with their own personal pleasure and enjoyment of life or they become impressed with psychological stimulation. Third point, whenever there is an emphasis on self, that is the gateway into worldly thinking. The scripture says that we are uh, to do away with worldly thinking and we are to be uh, conformed to the thinking of Christ. We are to renew our thinking. And that comes by the word of God. But when there is an emphasis on self, arrogance is the opposite of grace orientation and dependence upon God. So when there is an emphasis on self, it always takes us into the what we call the cosmic system or worldly thinking. And when you get into worldly thinking, it always leads to fragmentation of the soul because even though it may sound good, feel good, even though it may seem to work in the lives of some people, any system of thought that is not based on the Word of God is ultimately going to lead to failure in life and misery. Now, the fourth point in terms of distractions is that human viewpoint or the cosmic system always has a substitute Savior. It always has a substitute Messiah or substitute Redeemer. That something, someone is going to provide that real happiness and stimulation. For example, in most uh, secular humanism that we have in this nation, Evolution and, and evolutionary thought, there is the substitute of science and technology as a Messiah. That somehow through science and technology we're going to find the solution to all of life's problems and we are going to uh, be happy and healthy and wealthy. Uh, under various secular systems of government, such as communism, socialism, and most forms of totalitarianism, the state is substituted as the Messiah, that the state becomes the source of meaning in life and the definition uh, for meaning in life. And, of course, we saw that failure in the Soviet system when it broke apart, but no system of government this side of the millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ rules and reigns in a perfect political system Will there be a political system that can provide any of this? This is a problem we run into even in this country where people think, well, if this party or that party just got into power, then all of our problems would be solved. You'll never have all the problems solved this side of the millennial kingdom. And the mistake that we make is we suddenly begin to think that the state can provide uh, ultimate happiness and stability, and the state cannot. In fact, the more power you give to the state, the more freedoms you are giving away. The only time you have real freedom is when the government is limited in terms of its power and ability, and that is always expressed, as our founding fathers understood, but nobody today understands. It's always expressed through taxation. Money gives you freedom and alternatives. If you don't have money, you have no freedom and no alternatives. And the more money that the state takes away from the citizen in terms of taxation, the less freedom there is. The more money is left in the hands of the individual to do with as they will, the more freedom they have. That is why the Founding Fathers made taxation without representation such a crucial issue at the time of the war for independence against Great Britain. But if you did a comparison today with the taxes most of us pay, with the taxes they paid at that time, they hardly paid anything. 
And if people today again and again and again say, oh, I won't mind if my taxes go up to cover this thing or that thing or, or the other thing, and that just shows that they don't, that they need to go back to high school and take civics again. They don't understand anything about freedom or the founding of this nation, and they just want to enslave themselves to an all-powerful state all over again. And this is a problem, is when we start attributing to the state the source of happiness, the source of stability, then we have slipped into another form of idolatry. Point number five, the cosmic system, human viewpoint, always starts with the shift to arrogance and reliance upon self. Always begins with a shift to arrogance and reliance upon self. Now the problem that was faced in John's day is a problem that the people were more impressed with intellectual stimulation than with doctrine. Now I want to spend some time and develop that idea, but I think in light of events of this last week and the beginning of the war, uh, in Iraq, I want to look at another issue first, and that is the problem of emotions as a distraction to doctrine. And the problem with emotion is when we get into emotional sins, emotional sins such as fear and worry and anxiety. Problems with these mental attitude sins are at the root usually of many other mental attitude sins, because at the root of fear, worry, and anxiety is the idea that somehow, some way, I can control that which I perceive to be threatening my security. And that is one of the greatest uh, deceptions of arrogance, is that somehow we think we can control our security. Security is completely and totally in the hands of God. He is the one who has numbered the hairs on our head. He has already, from eternity past, determined the time, the manner, and the place of our death. There is nothing that we can do to alter that. It has been been determined beforehand in the counsel of God. Now, there are many things in life where our volition has an impact. Our volition can determine whether or not we are happy or we're miserable. Our volition can determine whether or not we will spend eternity in heaven or not, whether or not we're going to accept the free grace gift of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. Your volition is going to determine what you do with the spiritual life that God has given you. There are many things in life where your volition is going to play a part, but your volition has nothing to do with the time, the manner, and the place of your death. Now, it may play a part in how miserable you are at death, because if you're a carnal believer and you've lived your life in rebellion against God, then when it comes time to die, you will die a miserable death even as a believer, simply because you are going out under the sin unto death, and you will probably have no real certainty or assurance of your salvation even if you are a believer. If you're not a believer, then there will be a miserable time because those who are unsaved have no idea where they are going or what will happen when they die, and so there is just a leap into pure uncertainty and tremendous fear. Now, in our nation, ever since September 11th, we have become a nation of too many cowards. You hear it all the time in various interviews on the media with people who are afraid of doing anything very strong against the terrorists. So there was an initial reaction where there was a lot of a certain amount of strength shown, but that was emotion once again. That was an emotional reaction that people had uh, for retribution and vengeance. But once the cost became clear, once it became evident to some people what that cost would be, then people operated on that fear. Well, wait a minute. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we need to go to the U.N. Maybe there's strength in numbers. Maybe we need to make sure that everybody else is on board with us uh, before we do anything. And there may be some validity to some of that, but the issue is that when you know what's right, You need to stick with what's right no matter who goes along with you and who doesn't. And fortunately, we have a president who understands these things. Uh, I would like to be able to say that's because he's a Texan, but there are messed up Texans as well. But it's also nice to know that we have a commanding general over in in the Middle East who is uh, 
uh, also a Texan. See, it's nice to see that we're led by Texans every now and then. But not every Texan has it right, and we know that. Just think back to uh, LBJ. Well, we won't get off into politics. But we have to recognize that as a nation that is motivated by fear, we see that we are in danger of an internal collapse. As I've stated uh, in the first hour, in my travels the last couple of weeks, and actually over the last uh, six months, although I've traveled a little more the last uh, month or so, whenever anybody finds out that I travel very much, I get the question, well, aren't you scared? Aren't you worried? Aren't you concerned? I say, no, not at all. I'm not at all concerned. I mean, I wouldn't be at all concerned if some terrorist took over the airplane, started to fly it into the side of a mountain or into a building or anything else, because I know that exactly what will happen to me at the point of physical death. But I know that my confidence is in God. It's not in circumstances. My confidence is not in the uh, security of the United States uh, airports. My confidence is not in the, uh, in the INS or the Border Patrol. Ultimately, we can do as much as we can to provide some level of security through our uh, security forces. But ultimately, our security and our individual security is in the hands of the Lord. It is the Lord who has determined the number of my days, and so I'm not going to worry about these things. There was a great scene in the movie Gods and Generals, and if you haven't seen it, I strongly encourage that you go see this movie. And it is during the uh, time of the uh, first battle of Manassas. That's how we refer to it down in the south. North, they refer to it as Bull Run. But at Manassas, at Manassas, at the, at the, uh, is the time when Thomas Jonathan Jackson received his, his famous nickname of Stonewall Jackson. And it is because he had absolutely no fear of what would happen to him in the battle. And he is out in front of his troops on his horse where there are, uh, cannon, going off all around him, and he's being shot at as the federal troops are advancing on his position. And uh, uh, General uh, uh, B had already retreated, and his men were falling back, and he looked over and he saw Jackson standing there, and he rallied his troops, and he said, Men, stand behind Jackson. He's standing there like a stone wall. That's how he got his name. After the battle, one of his uh, officers came up to him and said, General, how can you be so calm? How can you be so so steady when there's so much battle going on all around you? And Jackson's answer was to the effect that, that God has already determined the time, manner, and place of my death, so why should I worry about it? I just need to relax and do my job. And that showed his tremendous understanding of doctrine and the Word of God. And Jackson was a fantastic Christian, and it is brought out in that movie. This is one of the few movies you will ever see produced by Hollywood that really honestly uh, demonstrates the impact of spirituality in the life of individuals. And you see that in the life of Jackson and in the life of Lee in this, in this movie. So I highly recommend it. But he demonstrates that there is no room, no place for fear, worry, or anxiety in the life of the believer. So we need to pay attention this morning to what the Bible says about the doctrine of fear. Point number one, fear is used two different ways in the Bible. Fear is used two different ways in the Bible. The first is the way in which we're talking about it this morning, and that is to describe a mental attitude sin that is characterized by anxiety, by worry, by panic. It is aroused by either real or perceived danger. In this case, sometimes our imagination is our worst enemy. It's aroused by impending crisis, disaster, or the fear of approaching evil. It's related to apprehension, consternation, horror, and dread. But fear and all other mental attitude sins are a sign that we are converting the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. Remember, adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity is what the world does to us and what circumstances do to us, 
but stress is what we do to ourselves. Adversity comes in many different shapes and sizes, but stress is related to sin nature control and fragmentation of the soul. Fear is related to emotionalism. What happens when we let our emotions run away with us rather than thinking rationally and coherently on the basis of Bible doctrine? When fear takes over, we become an easy prey to irrationalism and to false thinking. Now, that is what we're talking about this morning, fear as a mental attitude sin. Now, the other side of fear, the way the word is used in the Scripture, is in terms of reverence, respect, or awe. For example, in 1 Peter 2.17, we read, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, that is, other believers, fear God, and honor the king. Fear, in this sense, is the sense of respect or honor or obedience, to understand uh, the authority relationship of God and to obey Him. Deuteronomy 17:19 says, And it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life, that is, the Word of God, the law of Moses, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to respect, to honor, to reverence God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Leviticus 25:17. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Psalm 111:10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1:7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this level of fear is what is found in a marriage. It is something positive. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife. That's the husband's responsibility is to love his wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she fear, literally in the original language, fear her husband, but that is in the sense of respect for her husband to respect his authority. Now, the focus this morning is on fear as a mental attitude sin. So, point number two, what gives rise to fear in the life of the believer is a neglect of Bible doctrine. In the spiritual life, we go through three different stages, as I have outlined in the past. The first stage we call spiritual childhood. One of the things that characterizes spiritual childhood is spiritual curiosity. We are loaded with questions. How do I know God exists? How do I know Jesus rose from the dead? How do I pray? How do I know the Bible is really true? Uh, what, how how can, do I know about uh, creation and evolution? We're loaded with all kinds of questions. We want to know about truth, and we want to know how we are to live. So we're loaded with questions. But as you begin to grow up spiritually, your questions become answered. Now, if you're like most people, you're motivated during those, those early years of childhood by that spiritual curiosity. You want to learn. But as your questions are answered, that motivation to learn begins to be diminished. Your, your questions are answered. You're not as interested. You're not as enthusiastic. Now you know the answer to those questions. So you're coming to church not so much to learn, but your motivation now begins to shift. As you reach spiritual adolescence, what happens here is your focus should shift on those eternal realities, realizing that I'm living today in light of eternity, and this is where we begin to develop that personal sense of our eternal destiny. We begin to realize that the decisions I make today are going to count for eternity. So the motive shifts, and the motive now shifts to what, who and what we're going to be uh, in uh, eternity. Who and what we're going to be in eternity. But something else is happening. We're no longer there to get our questions answered. We're now going to be primarily reminded 
of what God has done for us, reminded again and again and again of those spiritual principles of the promises of God, of the procedures of God, so that we don't become complacent and begin to reverse our process. Then we get into spiritual maturity. And as we go into spiritual maturity, the focus here is that we're no longer so self-absorbed in some areas, not so much in a negative way, but we're not concerned with learning from me, but we begin to develop our personal love for God. Not that we don't have a certain level of love for God as a child, but it is not what it becomes as a mature believer. Just as a three-year-old may love his parents in some sense, it's not the kind of love that he has for his parents when he is a mature adult. So we develop our love for God. We begin to learn what it means to love other believers as Christ loved the church in terms of what we call impersonal love for all mankind and impersonal love for all believers. We call it impersonal because it doesn't demand a personal relationship. There are many times in life when we deal with people we don't really know, yet we are to treat them the same way as people we know very well. We are to treat them in the same kind of love that Christ had for the church. And then we are to become occupied with Christ. He is our focus. Uh, He is the author and finisher of our faith. We are to keep our focus on him. And the result of this is that we will share the happiness of God. Jesus said his joy he would give to us. So these are the three stages. But as we go from adolescence to maturity, as I said, the emphasis is on being reminded of the importance of doctrine, being reminded of everything that God has given us and being reminded that he has supplied us with every need, being reminded of the promises that God has given us. And so we need that reminder day in and day out because the natural drift of the sin nature is towards self-absorption and to worry, to anxiety, to fear, and some other mental attitude, sin in one shape or another. The drift is always towards self-absorption. It is only the teaching of the Word that begins to reorient our thinking and pull us back to reality to stabilize us in the midst of those crises and in the midst of the difficulties of life. It is always the neglect of doctrine that leads to the failure to realize that security comes only from God. And it is that principle, the failure to realize that security comes from God, that is the root of all fear. In the first hour, we studied the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt, and they came to the uh, Reed Sea, the Yom Suf. Uh, in Exodus chapter 14. And as the Egyptians pressed on them from the rear and the Reed Sea blocked their progress in the front and the uh, topography and the terrain kept them going north or south, they became afraid. The Israelites were afraid and of the Egyptians and they were panicking until Moses calmed them down. How did Moses handle the emotional panic? He said, stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord. He focused their thinking on the eternal promises and the character of God. He said, it is the Lord who is the one who fights for you this day. When we become uh, tempted to worry, fear, anxiety, we are to remember that the battle is the Lord's and He is the one who fights for us today. Second example from the Old Testament takes place when the nation of Israel again was being uh, cowered by are cowed by the Philistines. And the Philistines were setting forth their nine-foot-tall giant to call forth a champion to do battle. And the Israelites operated on the basis of fear. No one would go out and fight Goliath. No one had any courage because ultimately real moral courage comes from absolutes. Absolutes can only come from an understanding of the divine viewpoint of Scripture. So the Israelites were afraid of Goliath. They were depressed. They were defeated. But David understood that it was a spiritual battle. It wasn't a battle between, uh, it wasn't a battle between people who had one technology versus another technology. In fact, the Philistines had a superior technology to the Jews. They had blacksmiths, and they had kept any blacksmiths from operating in Israel so that the Jews did not have iron weapons. So David, under the direction of God the Holy Spirit, uses a weapon that is of technological inferiority 
of, of, of extreme technological inferiority to the Philistines, and he takes a sling out to do battle with Goliath. But he didn't take just a sling. He also took his uh, shepherd's staff and a club with him. But it was with the sling that he uh, stunned the uh, giant, and then he took the, uh, took the giant sword and decapitated him. But what gave him courage was he understood that the real issues in any crisis in life, whatever it is that you face, I don't care what the economic dimensions are, I don't care what the other emotional dimensions are, I don't care what the business or family or geographical or military dimensions are, the real battles in life are always spiritual. There is always ultimately a spiritual dimension, and if you have victory in the spiritual dimension, no matter what happens in the, in, in, in with, the, with the circumstances, whether they change or not, you have won that particular battle in terms of your spiritual life. David understood that the battle was the Lord's, and God gave him the victory. And then there is one other key episode, which I want to turn to. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Perfect illustration of the importance of the faith rest drill and the failure to use it and the failure to trust God in the midst of a crisis. This is the episode where the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and they come encounter an incredible storm. Now, I understand that the Sea of Galilee is a a sea that is, uh, can have tremendous storms that come up uh, very rapidly and have very uh, high waves and can be quite dangerous if you're caught out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. This particular day, they were crossing over to the other side, verse 35. They left the multitude. They got in the boat. And in verse 37, Mark 4:37, we're told, in a great windstorm, Arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. So as they're trying, now this is not a rowboat. This would be a rather, probably a uh, 15, 20 foot uh, fishing vessel that would, commercial fishing be- vessel that they used out on the, on the Sea of Galilee, built for that. I mean, Peter and James and John were fishermen. They were out on the Sea of Galilee all the time. They are experienced fishermen, and they understand how to how the storms can come up, and they know how to handle it. But this storm is so great that it is overpowering the experience that is inside that boat. Now, while the, it's a perfect picture of panic, because you can look, think about this scene, and you can see the disciples are frantically trying to bail out the boat. They're trying to keep the sail down. They're trying to row the boat, trying to get to shore. And through all of this tumult, and you can imagine with the great windstorm that there were probably 10, 15-foot waves perhaps uh, tossing this boat to and fro. And throughout all of this tumult, throughout their panic and the yelling and the shouting back and forth to be heard over the wind and the rain, Jesus is fast asleep down in the boat. Verse 38, But he was in the stern, back by the rudder. He is asleep on a pillow. They have to wake him up. He is perfectly calm. He is perfectly relaxed. And this is one of those miracles that demonstrates not his reliance on God the Holy Spirit to solve the problem, but where he is demonstrating his own power as the creator God who sustains the universe, who is going is the one that we can rely on in the midst of our crises. He was in the stern, asleep on the pillow. They awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? See, this is typical of believers who are in carnality. We, we hit some crisis, some adversity, some difficulty, something that, that upsets us, and what happens? We start blaming God for the circumstances. Don't you care about me, God? If you really cared about me, why did you let this happen to me? Why do you continue to let these things happen to me? Why are, am I always encountering these kinds of problems? And so this is typical of the believer who is not operating on doctrine, and he starts blaming God for his problems. Do you not care that we are perishing? So Jesus arose and rebuked the wind 
and said to the sea, Peace be still. And at his word instantly the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now it's at a time like this when I wish Charlie Clough were here to get some good meteorological data on a storm like this and how how this would be impacted. Uh, how what what the dimensions of this would be that instantly the wind stops, instantly the sea is calm. This doesn't happen. I've had some experience being out on uh, open waters in a boat where where there is a, a storm or a high wind, but nothing, nothing like this. But this is just phenomenal to understand the meteorological dimensions of what has taken place here. But what's even more important is the spiritual dimension, because after Jesus solves the problem and calms the weather, he turns to them and says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? So Jesus instantly juxtaposes fear with a lack of doctrine. Fear with a lack of doctrine. See, it's not simply that they aren't trusting. But as we have seen so many times in our study, it is not trusting what you know. That faith has the idea of not only the act of trusting or the act of relying, but it also refers to the content of faith. We talk about somebody's faith. We say, well, that person is is a Protestant faith or Catholic faith or Episcopal faith or Presbyterian faith. And that indicates the content of their faith. And what Jesus is saying here is you don't have any doctrine. See, faith isn't faith in faith. It's not mysticism. It's not just trusting to trust. You'll hear people say that, well, you just need to have faith. No, you don't need to have faith. You need to have faith in doctrine. You need to have faith in the promises of God. You need to have faith in the truth of Scripture, because if you have faith in anything else, then that faith isn't any good. Faith is only as strong as its object. And so Jesus isn't saying, why aren't you trusting? Because they are trusting. They're trusting in their own ability to solve the problem out on the lake. So Jesus is challenging them that how is it that you don't have any doctrine? You've been listening to me teach. You have grown up with the teachings of the Pharisees. You know the Old Testament. You know the promises of the Old Testament. But it makes no difference in the way you live your life or the way you handle problems. And the result was they feared exceedingly. Now, here's a great example of how fear is used in both senses in the space of two, ver- two sentences. They were fearful in verse 40 in terms of anxiety and worry and panic and a mental attitude sin. But in verse 41, the fear is not a mental attitude sin. It is respect and awe because they understand the power of God and they have just witnessed Jesus demonstrate his deity and his power and authority over creation. And they say, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So from these three examples, and we could look at many more, it is the neglect of doctrine and the failure to realize that security comes only from God that is the root of all fear. Point number three, fear is a failure to think under pressure. It's a failure to think under pressure. It is the realization that our own attempts to provide security are absolutely fruitless, and therefore we go into irrational anxiety and an emotional sin. Fear is the basic emotional sin that is produced by arrogance. It is the, when you once become self-absorbed and arrogant, the first sin that is produced is fear. For this we go to Genesis chapter 3, when we know that uh, Adam and the woman have sinned, Adam and Eshah have sinned, and then God comes to uh, looking for them in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid 
because I was naked, so I hid myself. The first emotional reaction after Adam has fallen as a sinner because of his arrogance is fear. Fear is the root of sin. I mean, the root emotional sin. So we have to understand that that once we run into circumstances that emphasize and highlight our own limitations and our own finiteness, that is when we begin to recognize our anxieties. So fear is a failure to think under pressure. It is a panic reaction because we realize we can't control the details of life or the negative circumstances surrounding us. And so we begin to think on the basis of emotion and become irrational. And the results of that are always fragmentation. Point number four. For the believer, fear begins with the failure to learn and apply doctrine. Once a believer is out of fellowship, then sin begins to fragment the soul. Once you quit relying upon God, you begin to operate on the sin nature. Fear is a first product of that. And remember, fear cannot coexist with the operation of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking by means of the flesh, which is the sin nature. With doctrine, we can say that the battle is the Lord's, but with fear, we cower in uncertainty, and we focus on the circumstances rather than the God who controls the circumstances. People who live by fear are intimidated by life and the circumstances of life, and they let the circumstances enslave them. The believer who lives in a state of fear lives with an emotional cancer that eats away at his soul. Fear, in turn, eliminates motivation from personal love for God and eliminates a personal sense of your eternal destiny. As you succumb to worry, anxiety, and guilt, you begin to reverse course in the spiritual life. Faith and fear cannot coexist at the same time. Principle, fear of anything will never prevent the anticipated disaster. No matter how much you are afraid, no matter how much you worry, worry cannot stop the anticipated disaster. All it will do is destroy your own capacity to enjoy life. Fear of death will never prevent your death. Fear of death will never keep you alive. It will just destroy your enjoyment of life. So fear is being overcome by the problem, enmeshed in the crisis, and engulfed in emotion. Furthermore, point number five, the absence of fear is rooted in an understanding of God's love and the motivation that that provides for our spiritual life. Just briefly remind you of 1 John 4:12 through 19, which we studied in detail. 1 John 4.12 states, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. This is talking about ongoing fellowship. This is key to understanding all of 1 John. And His love is perfected, that is, matured in us as we grow in spiritual maturity. By this we know that we abide in Him, that is, that we have fellowship with Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means of spiritual growth. Verse 14, we have beheld and bear witness that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses or admits that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Notice this is the same problem in 1 John that we're running into in 2 John is people who have a uh, distorted view of the uh, hypostatic union, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. Then we have 1 John 4.16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is matured with us that we may have confidence when? In the day of judgment. This is the context of Second John. How do you have confidence in the day of judgment? <coughs> How do we have confidence in the day of judgment except by maturing as believers? And this is why John says in verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love or mature love casts out fear. The fear in context is fear 
or lack of confidence at the judgment seat of Christ, but it's related to the whole spiritual life. We have fear because there is no doctrine in the soul, and we're not operating on the doctrine that we have. (coughs) So this brings us to point number six, and that is that God's love provides us with all of the security that we need. A failure to abide in fellowship is a rejection of God's provision and a rejection of the security that only God can provide. Fear, worry, and and anxiety are key signs that our confidence is not in God but in man. So, point number seven, the snowballing principle of fear. The more things you surrender the fear, the more things you will fear. The extent to which you surrender to fear, the greater will be your capacity for fear. Let me go over those again. The more things you surrender to fear, the more things you fear. It's just going to snowball on you. You're afraid of one thing today. Tomorrow you're going to be afraid of two things. The next day you'll be worrying about three or four things. The more things you surrender to fear, the more things you will fear. Second, the extent to which you surrender to fear, the greater will be your capacity to fear. You're just going down a, a downward spiral. The greater your capacity to fear, the more you increase the power of fear in your life. And the more that fear increases its power in life, the more you will be controlled by fear and the less you will want to do. So that the more you increase the power of fear in your life, the greater your mindset as a failure as a believer and the greater your chances of failure as a believer. Fear is a sign that you have put an abnormal emphasis on self. You're self-absorbed, you're self-indulgent, and when we indulge our emotions rather than focusing on doctrine, we will always end up in mental attitude sins. Point number eight. A nation that operates on fear destroys itself from the inside. A financial panic can cause an economic collapse. A military panic can cause a military disaster. When people make decisions based on fear, they will fail to fly and to travel. As a result of that, the unintended consequences are that the airline industry will begin to collapse. Uh, Related industries, motel business, restaurant business, uh, taxi business also begins to fail, so there becomes a downward spiral in economic failure. And so because people are afraid and they refuse to travel, it can destroy the economy of a nation and destroy a nation, all because doctrine is no longer in the nation and people will no longer trust God. They trust or try to trust their circumstances, and the result is fear, worry, and anxiety. The solution to fear, then, is to trust God to know his promises. And let me close with a reminder of some of the promises of Scripture. Psalm 27, 1 and 3. Psalm 27, 1 states, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. Psalm 49.5 states, Why should I fear in days of adversity, when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Psalm 56.4, In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Isaiah 12.2, Behold, God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will uphold thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And finally, Philippians 4, 5, and 6. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. 
Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that you are a God in whom we can trust, that you are omnipotent, you are greater than any problem, any difficulty, any heartache that we will ever face. You are greater than any circumstance. You are the God who controls history and the details of our lives are in your hands. You love us. We are your children by virtue of the fact that we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would encourage us, each of us at this time in our nation struggles with different areas of anxiety, perhaps different areas of fear, that we would put our faith alone in you that we would claim these promises knowing that you are our rock, you are our bulwark, you are our fortress, and you alone can provide uh, strength and sustenance, security and stability in times of crisis. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation is a free gift. God the Father made a plan in eternity past to provide a salvation that would take care of all of your sins. He sent his son Jesus Christ to take on human flesh, to become a man, to enter into human history, and to go to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. There on the cross, God the Father poured out the judicial penalty for all of our sins. He died as our substitute so that by accepting that death, we would have eternal life. All you have to do right where you sit is to simply believe that Jesus died on the cross as your Savior. It's not a matter of works or moral reformation or ritual. It is a matter simply of trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to apply the things that we have studied this morning, to be reminded of these promises and encouraged by your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.